This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico are seeing her homeland by cycling Japan from top to tail. A photojournalist at the press in Christchurch, Roy, then head of New Zealand's chapter of the World Peace Bell, sought a replica bell to cite at Christchurch Botanic Gardens. Trailer for sale or rent Rooms to let 50 cents No phone, no pool, no pets Ain't got no cigarettes of it Two hours of pushing broom Fives an eight by twelve Four bedroom I'm a man of means By no means King of the road Climate change is nothing new to Japan. On Honshu Island in the north is a stratovolcano, Mount Iwaki. At least once when it erupted, the volcanic particles emitted to the atmosphere by blocking the sun, sunk soil temperatures. This triggers a famine through crop failure. We've struck rain, lucky to reach shelter in the city of Aomori, badly bombed in World War Two. In an air raid near the end of the war, a B-29 squadron kills 1,761 and destroys 1,800 homes. Faced with the Cold War to follow, United States occupies a big air base in the vicinity of Mitsuru. Haruko, my partner, is Japanese, yet struggling to understand the local language, a dialect derived from earlier incursions into the region. Of the indigenous Ainu folk, virtually every vestige of their culture is assimilated in the 18th century by the Sugari Samurai clan, leaving little trace. We stumble on a modern mystery as we enjoy the hospitality of a veterinarian now retired to his grand home where he wishes to be self-sufficient in growing all of his own food. He apologizes that his wife is away, for it is she who prepares the food for youth hostelers staying as their guests in an adjoining self-contained YHA in a forest setting. He tells us her hostel evening meals are legendary and is sorry we are missing out in her absence. When will she return? Haruko asks. He replies, um, the day after tomorrow. Considering we've already cycled a thousand kilometers, we're thinking to stay a day or two longer here on the outskirts of Hanamaki at Nara no Sato Youth Hostel. He offers a ride in his car to the onsen in a nearby village and later treats us to his own supply of whiskey, which we agree is rare in the Japanese YHA. Third box car, midnight train, destination, banger main. Old worn out suit and shoes, I don't pay no union. We're now beginning to feel uneasy, hoping his wife will, indeed, be back the day after tomorrow, whenever that may be. Meantime, we must resume the journey, being on our way tomorrow. 
In the morning, we find our hosts done a wonderful spread for breakfast. Small sausages, grilled fish and tomatoes. Yet grumbling about how we shouldn't expect such a breakfast in another YHA. Chatting, he recalls how a Swiss couple considered Japan more attractive than their own country. He wonders why he meets many couples like us, where a Japanese wife has a gaijin foreigner for a husband, yet never the other way round. Parting, we say to our fascinating host how we regret not meeting his wife and trying her excellent cooking. Oh, he says, but she'll be home again soon, uh, the day after tomorrow. We ride through fields of yellow, cross the train tracks, cycle along a river path, heading over the island towards the Sea of Japan on Honshu's quieter west coast. I have a hunch that we are cycling along a former scenic railway, a route especially attractive in autumn. We pause at a lone fishing store. Its proprietor offers us tea. According to an electronic road sign, the heat is hitting over 30 degrees Celsius. Thankfully, I enjoy for the first time the refreshing qualities of Japanese green tea, accompanied by crisp, juicy, nushy pears. While we chat in the shade, here in the mountains approaches the noise of a small motorbike. The postman, immaculately retired, iron shirt and tie. For my benefit, Tetsu bursts into fluent English. I just kept watching English programs on television, he explains. Cycling on, we find in the isolated town of Yuda an onsen in its train station, where the walls display railway memorabilia. Next morning, I fall foul of a pedantic rail worker for stepping onto the station platform. From the tirade he directs through Haruko, I'm to understand that Gaijin foreigners aren't welcome near his railway. Regaining the road, we round a bend to find a straw figure displaying an enormous phallic symbol, something we can't imagine in Christchurch's Victoria Square, apparently a symbol of fertility to produce children. We ride on, amused by this old tradition in Yamagata Prefecture. This leads on to a curious modern trend that fascinates foreigners visiting Japan, the Love Hotel. Looking like tacky European-style castles and with names to match, they're simple to spot in the urban environment. Their original idea was to be where a couple could go away from the kids, as sex in small dwellings, having only paper walls to separate rooms, could never be discreet. Yet, in its contemporary form, I think it likely that married couples account for but a small part of the patronage. Sometimes we'd stop near a love hotel to watch clients leaving. Mostly, they're young. We know what they've been doing, but, sadly, with expressions vacuous, they never seem to be happy. Short, but not too big around. I'm a man of means, by no means. King of the road. I know every engineer on every train. All the children and all of the names. And every handout in every 
After a hot day's ride in up to 30 degrees Celsius, we delight to better our own record at an average cycling speed of 17.8 kilometres per hour, over 115 kilometres to the coast at Kizakata, where the sun is setting over the Sea of Japan. Spectacular from our vantage point on the seafront, the daily bike riding, soaking in the onsen, and excellent Japanese food fare strip kilograms from my body, so it looks like the, the lean machine I'm seeking, just as Japanese beyond middle age appear to be from doing physical work with outdoors lifestyle. We head inland again to Joitsu, the site of where a concentration camp was in the Second World War. It's now a park with a small museum. Australian prisoners were put to work in munitions factories. Their home was a warehouse with sides open to the weather, which in winter, so bitter with snow two metres deep, was a killer, if not directly, then from overwork. This cruelty kills 65 Australians. In remembrance of them, 65 lanterns are left to float down the Hokuru River on the 15th of August each year. The Australia-Japan Foundation alerts a younger generation to what happened historically. Yoko Ishizuka, speaking also for her husband, Shoichi, is concerned. We are touched, she says, by what the Australians achieved to commemorate a wartime tragedy, creating a beautiful Japanese garden, hosting the Australian peace bell and building a lasting friendship between our Japanese and Australian people. We feel shame to know what had happened in our own city and did nothing about. The Japanese representatives arranged to meet us over dinner later. Arriving at the Hotel Venue, Haruko leans her bicycle against the wall near the entrance, and I'm about to do the same when a youngish uniformed reception clerk rushes out to tell us bikes aren't allowed there. But behind him comes a senior manager with a big smile, charming voice, to confirm Harlico is who she is, takes her bicycle, while the young clerk, putting on a brave face, takes mine. No one protests at our bicycles, still flaking bits of mud from tyre treads, being wheeled over the plush carpeted foyer to a secure storeroom. Well, it's good to get the royal treatment sometimes. To add variety to our route through Japan, we slog 20 kilometres uphill to go inland to Nagano Prefecture. This direction heads to the Japanese Alps. How difficult it is to keep a Canterbury lad 
kept away from the real mountains, even if it entails great hardship on me. Nagano is a wonderful prefecture, in which the mountains surround the cities of Nagano and Matsumoto. We book a traditional tatami room to ourselves in Nagano's Waiache. As it's part of a temple complex, youth hostlers are obliged to respect rules of the temple, but its blessing is to be a quiet, restful place in which to spend a few days of wet weather watching heavy, warm rain dance on the pavement with the temperature still in the sticky high 20s. Harlico finds an izakaya-style cafe where we may sit, just inside the curtained entrance. They serve cold beer in large, chilled glasses, accompanied by our favourite entree, a simple dish of boiled green soy beans. Still to come are grilled fish, fried crunchy noodles galore, and thin slices of lightly cooked beef. It proves yet again Japanese cuisine is excellent for bike travellers. I do confess, however, to not being a great fan of the infamous natto. That's fermented and pungent bean paste, which tests buds of any Gaijin foreigner, who it reminds of the smell of sewers. Another occasion, we're patronising a Nagano cafe. I'm about to eat a sprig of fresh parsley remaining on my plate, when Haruko stops me saying, no one eats parsley garnishing in Japan. It's never thrown away, but often recycled onto someone else's plate. You ought never eat it. In the nearby Ueda Mountains, we pedal to the top of a very steep hill to arrive at the art museum Sishiro Kubashima founds in 1997 as a memorial to art school graduates who died at war. Even from the battlefield, they sent letters, cards, sketched, not always serious pictures. Among their paintings the museum displays are portraits of lovers, nude girlfriends, either real or imagined, some very beautiful. I've once met the man behind the Mugon Khan Museum. Sishiro Kubashima believes as many as 1,000 aspiring artists, at least 30 of them graduates of Tokyo School of Fine Arts, had died in the war. His museum is atonement for his own lost youth, appreciation particularly of the art of young people for their joy of expressing themselves in a way that modern Japan lacks. He had visited their families to collect about 300 pieces of art for display, often to be told, he's too late, if only he had come a decade before, before families had decided to cremate the artworks with the bodies of the artist's parents. Most families welcomed Sishiro Kubishima's idea. The elder brother of one young artist agreed to donate the artwork to his museum, whereas he would not have done so to a museum owned by the government which his sibling lost his life fighting for. On the back of the donated painting which the artist worked on till the last minute before going to war is a memo stating how he needed five minutes more to finish that nude portrait of his girlfriend. It remains unfinished, the artist having lost his life on Luzon Island in the Philippines in 1944. Yet another art student gives for his pregnant wife the picture drawn from his imagination as to how may look their baby yet to be born. She dies while giving birth, so the soldier has only that portrait of the baby neither ever saw. 
Seishiro Kubashima says he doesn't have the heart to take that drawing for his museum. He believes many artworks convey regrets at having to take up arms rather than an artbrush. In essence, the Mugon Khan Museum is Seishiro's atonement for his own lost youth as war and gulps his land. Of landscapes, one work displays Tokyo's Ginza district, very fashionable even in pre-war days. To get to art school, most students had the advantage of wealth in their families. An exception is Hiroshi Izawa. Born to poverty, his father a farmer. Somehow, family sacrifices get Hiroshi to Tokyo School of Fine Arts. When war comes, he gets to be in the east of New Guinea. That's where his artistic dreams end in death at the age of 26. He leaves a painting of his parents, brother and sister, uncharacteristically resting in an opulent western-style parlour. Was it his way, the dreamlike setting, of expressing gratitude to them for financing his studies? In preserving their work, the museum validates their existence as individuals, regardless of their accomplishment as artists. In the lead-up to the 60th anniversary of the end of World War II, a Japanese ultranationalist attacks with hammer and chisel a Hiroshima Peace Cenotaph inscription, and a large polished stone palette etched with images from an art school is daubed in red. It distresses me to see on the highways of Japan the presence of nationalistic groups, usually in battered grey fans, loudspeakers blaring, voicing slogans along with European tunes reminiscent of Hitler's infamous youth movement, Hitler Youth. Yet they give a wave, seeming friendly enough. Mugonkan Museum is rarely mentioned in travel guides, yet we rate it as one of the most poignant and important. I am glad we discovered it, sitting prominently on a hill, so superbly surrounded by scattered villages and, in the distance, the Japanese Alps. That view in itself justifies all our sweat to reach the top, welcomed by a taxi driver clapping encouragement for our efforts. I'd wish to make this art museum a part of our cycling trip, and in hindsight, am pleased we did. Yet I feel a little unease about how the idea of our proposed world peace bell may go down in New Zealand, where there's still some ill feeling toward the Japanese owing to their involvement in World War Two. Personally, I think it's a great idea. But often, I wish it had been someone else's. Next objective is to cycle up to the Alpine Tourist Resort at Kamikoshi. They who rely on motor transport of one kind or another will inevitably miss much that the cyclist experiences in moving over the landscape at a slower pace. Speedy trains may be the way to the future, but they can't climb mountains beyond a certain gradient. At the nearest rail terminus, sightseers alight 
have buses or taxis take them on higher up. This tourist traffic crowds the road route, which is to be expected when Japanese law steeps mountains in mystery and foreboding. They are cast as treacherous edifices for the gods and those on religious pilgrimages. Such thoughts persist, though tourists travel in air-conditioned comfort. Would they spare a thought for those cycle tourists, us hemmed in against the roadside, barely making headway between Matsumoto and this haven in the midst of mountains, Kamikochi, at the end of a seven-kilometre detour away from the main highway? In this region, the English missionary and mountaineer Walter Weston, keen on alpine recreation, helped set up the Japanese Mountaineering Club. In fact, it's he who, in the 1890s, introduced the term Alps in Japan. We find a plaque in a grotto by the river dedicated to him, a shrine where a festival each June honours him as the English father of Japan's alpine enjoyment. To get there by bicycle must be as hazardous as mountaineering. We're cycling hard uphill for miles into a series of road tunnels we share with cars and buses. There's road reconstruction inside, limiting traffic to taking turns one way. But that doesn't take into account that cyclists make relatively slow progress up through the tunnel. The alternating traffic flows is controlled by traffic light and workers waving flags. We pedal hard in semi-darkness against the tunnel's uphill gradient. Then the unthinkable happens. The lights change while we are still inside a road tunnel, letting opposing traffic to thunder down into the darkness on the loose gravel surface. Harleco reckons it's, it's like being in a horror movie. We pin ourselves to the tunnel wall as a string of heavy vehicles, oblivious to our presence, drive dangerously close to us. Somehow we survive those narrow encounters in the longest tunnel, where the roadway is revealed only by eerie yellow lights, but no sign of artificial ventilation. Evidently it's left to air, funneling naturally into the tunnels at one end, to blow fumes out the other. Emerging out the top end, we need to confront a new danger. We're weary. Harleco's speech is incoherent. I think of us breathing in air impurities in the tunnel, the exhaust fumes of so many internal combustion engines fighting gravity. Add to that the risk of hypoxia heightened because of the thinner air at altitude, and it's no wonder we feel strange. We find outside a railing to rest on. Leaning over, we look down on a tangle of trees far below. The interlocking leaf canopies obscures the true depth of the mountain chasm. We reckon the remedy is lots of fresh air and a banana each to restore healthy oxygen to our lungs. In a while, we are able to make the last of the uphill climb to Kamikoshi, none the worse for the ordeal. But we're ready to rest, though having cycled a mere 53 kilometres today, mostly uphill. Kamikoshi is a thriving, overpopulated alpine resort with plush hotels. It's also the mustering point for many an alpine trek or climbing adventure. A cold beer resurrects our outdoors enthusiasm, so we set about making camp in the forest. We're woken in the morning after rain set in overnight by a strange tinkling of bells. 
tinkling of bells. Investigating its source, we see through the bush hundreds of trekkers in groups setting off along a nearby forest path. Their waterproof precautions extend to walking under umbrellas, hardly to be compared with New Zealand's trampers' gear. We're afraid we'll be caught out high up in Typhoon 21, forecast to hit the island of Honshu soon, and already fears mounting for Harleko at the thought of repeating her Tunnel of Horrors experience. I assure her that going down through the long road tunnels will be less an ordeal than coming up. We're also awake early enough, thanks to jingling of bells, to avoid dense traffic later in the day. Oh, yes, about the bell's jingle. There to ward off any dangerous wild bears in the vicinity. Yet the Japanese seem to have no fear of asphyxiation in the road tunnels when they wait so patiently for their turn to go through the one-way sections. Meanwhile, the build-up of fumes deep inside the portals rises dangerously during the day. Why don't they simply switch off their engines in the long queues? Though Haluka herself has suffered its ill effects, I won't dare to suggest its lack of common sense to create that asphyxiating atmosphere when it might so easily be avoided. She needn't remind me. That's the thinking of a foreigner ignorant of Japanese ways. This is Japan. Yet they do recognize air quality as a potential hazard elsewhere as we resume our cycle ride from the alpine resort of Kamikoshi on to our next objective, Takeyama. We come to the road tunnel, four kilometres long, which leads the way down. But no, bicycles are banned, and downhill and all it would have been a breeze. There's no option but to do a detour of fourteen kilometres. It takes us high into the clouds on a narrow road of severe hairpins, we go as high as 1,780 metres over the Abo Pass that divides Nagamu and Yifu prefectures. It's the highest national road in Japan. Now comes our steep, fast descent into lush forest. We all but freeze from that cold air penetrating our damp clothing. In the village of Hirayu, we chance on a snug European-style café. Its name's curious, Moustache, a New Zealander who preceded us in 1993 by walking the length of Japan, Craig McLaughlin, in 1993, stopped here on his way north before continuing on to the summit of Abo Pass where, in those days, there'd been the luxury of a tea room at the top. We spend an hour or so in the Moustache Café, drying out, munching on oishi, very tasty, toasted sandwiches, sipping hot coffee, which is consistently excellent in Japan. Haluko buries herself in newspapers to catch up with the news, but eventually we must face the elements again. We climb the long spiral bridge we've been eyeing from the cafe window. It's a tough climb to a tunnel, but its other end reveals we're on the brink of a 40-kilometre descent to Takayama. What a difference. We are, in effect, heading down the southern flank of the Japanese Alps. Our afternoon is not what we hoped. Typhoon 21 is dousing Yifu Prefecture as an advance warning. There's more to come tomorrow. For now, we're sodden and happy content to reach Takayama's youth hostel, which is one like any we might find in France and other European countries, 
but with a difference. It's part of a temple complex. Today is the 38th of our cycle ride. We've put 2,000 kilometers behind us. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.